You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional Killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing being a feminist pregnant person and some groundbreaking research on the Hillary campaign and online harassers. And to do all that, we will be joined by feminist scholar extraordinaire, our dear friend, Dana Showalter. We're so excited to have our former grad colleague uh, with us today. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? Everywhere. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and make sure to leave us a review if you love it or like it or just kind of like it. Maybe you don't like (laughs) it. All reviews are helpful. Uh, You can follow us on Instagram. We have a Facebook page and group. So now you can join our Feminist Killjoys group, which is different than our page. So you can actually post and have conversations about our topics. And then also we have a Twitter account. And if you're on Spotify, you can find our mixtape under our podcast title. And if you have extra money and want to support feminist media laborers, you can donate directly on our website, which is feministkilljoyspodcast.com. And we also have a Patreon account going. And also, lastly, email my favorite form of online communication, fkj.phd at gmail.com. Cool. I just want to give an extra plug to our group because um, we have like almost 600 people on the Facebook page that like it, but we only have like 60 people on the group, which is fine. I don't mind that it's like a smaller group of people and community, but um, I just want to give an extra plug to it because it's just so much easier to engage uh, with each other on a group page. Um, And that's Feminist Killjoys Community dash WTF Power. So when you're searching... Uh, just note that. So yeah, cool. Uh, so what's up, Mel? How's your week been? My week has been the best week ever, actually. So many life goals have been achieved in one week. I was on NPR, which is Minnesota public radio on Monday. Talk, just kidding. Tuesday talking about my bicycle research and some specifically some work I did on police citations. And then it was awesome. Thank you. And then Mm -hmm. I got to meet, actually, a podcast celebrity yesterday. Um, this guy, Seth, he does, if listeners are familiar, he is half of Uh Yeah Dude, which is, um, it was the first uh, co- comedy podcast. They've been doing it for 11 years. And so they've been doing this before, like, podcasting was even a thing. And um, I used to listen to them a lot when I was in Milwaukee. And they had a show here yesterday. And so I just like randomly called them and asked them if they needed a ride. And one of them called me back and said he did. And so I just picked him up from the airport and he's like super dreamy. (laughs) And I got a selfie with him and, you know, saw him after the show and uh, tried not to be. I wasn't fangirly at all, I don't think. Um, I was more like Midwest host, like making sure like he had everything he needed, which is just like how I Mm -hmm. interact with all my guests. I get a little like overly host ish if that makes sense like mm-hmm. are you sure you don't need anything you need water right now like do you need some food and so anyway so i had a good time being a host for a split second and then i colored my hair pink and it looks just like gwen stefani right at the end of no doubt you know what i'm talking about yeah that era absolutely okay. yes i know that era it's a great it was a great era 
And your hair looks awesome, according to ins- from what I saw on Instagram. Thanks. So, nice job. Thank you. I will say, though, I do not fully support all of late era Gwen Stefani, and no doubt, because that was also her Bindi slash cornrows phase. So I feel like Bindi was actually early, no doubt. It was, she continued she, to appropriate. I mean, she, she has like a, a harem of Asian women. I mean, she's like not an okay person. Uh, but... I feel like Bindi was early. No, you're right. It was, but she continued. She got really. I was looking at some pictures of her from this era, and it got more like Indian inspired. Her fashion mm, did. Okay. Where before it was like punk with a Bindi, it was yeah. more like wearing a sari and uh, okay. like things. According to my internet okay. research and recollection okay. from being a giant No Doubt fan, um, so I just wanted yeah. to say I appreciate the hair color, but not all of what she represents. Right, right, totally. So, yeah. Um, how, how are you? Yeah, cool. Uh, I'm okay. Uh, the week's been the week's been pretty okay. Um, I taught tan- the movie Tangerine in my film class, and my, had a really good discussion with my students about that, that film, um, which I recommend. Uh, last night, I went to a, a Halloween party slash like basement show. Uh, my friend George was is in a Weezer cover band, and they played the entire Blue Al- album, and it was super fun. Um, and I felt very nostalgic for Weezer and lots of eras in my life when I listened to Weezer. And yeah, and it was good. And that's it. That's all I want to say because I want to get to our guest. Can we bring her in for our Who's Ruining the Dinner Party segment? Yes. Hello, Dana. Are you there? I am. Hello. Dana! Hi, Dana! We're so excited to going? have you! Oh, I'm excited. Yay! ABD support group! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, so for a little more background and context, um, all three of us were at the uh, University of Minnesota Com Studies grad program in Minneapolis together. Um, And when we finished coursework, we created what we called the ABD support group, because when you finish coursework as a grad student, life gets fucking miserable. Um, And we supported each other in terms of like reading drafts of each other's dissertations and helping with job market letters and stuff. But we were also just like emotional support. We also had Sarah with us for a little while. So shout out to Sarah. Um, But uh, Sarah finished before we all did. So we had another year with each other. But yeah, so we're super happy to have her. And she's all the way over in Oregon. Yeah. Yeah, so she teaches. And I'll take over the bio. Yeah, please. Uh, so she please. is a professor at Western Oregon University. And obviously, like we just mentioned, she got her PhD at the U. Um, she did a really cool dissertation. Um, and it's, I mean, mostly it's cool because like we helped her construct it, but her brain also um, did some contribution to this. Uh, the fancy title <laughs> is called, <laughs> the fancy title is called Philanthropy as Gendered Global Governance. And then there's more big words. But basically, um, it was about looking at developing countries and the women that are in them and companies like philanthropy companies that would go target these women and say like, Hey, you should be entrepreneurs. Let us fund your businesses. And Dana did this really smart takedown, like smart killjoy takedown of why those organizations and those tactics are problematic. And so um, hopefully she'll talk to us a little bit more about that. Um, And she's also expecting a baby very soon. 
And so she agreed to kind of be our, she is willing to talk to us about being a feminist and a pregnant person and um, some of the issues she's having navigating that where she's living now. So we're very thankful that she's willing to talk to us about that. Also her kick-ass research. But first, we wanted to bring you in for the ruining of the dinner party because... A lot of dinner parties. So I like that. (laughs) I know. That's why we love you. You probably ruin them more than (laughs) me, I would say, because people just expect me to be the, uh, (laughs) the ruiner. But like you, I love Dana because... You have some of my other radical friends are like this, where like if somebody looks at you, you know, like you look very professional and like you don't have like tattoos and pink hair, basically, you know. And so like people just think they're just like, oh, this is a nice professional, you know, Democrat with a capital D lady. And then you just like are like, no, let me tell you. It's a strategy. It's like a strategy. It's It's like undercover, you know. Anyway, so. (laughs) <laughs> the dinner party that's being ruined I don't know what's going on with Hillary Clinton's emails This, so we're recording this on a Saturday Friday this like news kind of broke about more emails and I wanted to bring Dana in so she could explain this what's going on Cause, so go. the email thing is something I think that's tough to follow but from the latest thing that I can piece together of what happened is basically um, Anthony Weiner is sexting underage girls across state lines. And so they had gone into his home and took his personal computer from the home to investigate his sexting scandal. And his wife is also a top advisor for Hillary Clinton and has been for like forever. And she's super badass and super smart and really great. So in the course of taking the computer, they found some emails that she were on the computer because Hillary Clinton doesn't like to read things on a screen. So a lot of things, articles and stuff, she um, has people print out. And so sometimes people just send emails to um, uh, Anthony Muir's wife and say, like, hey, can you print this out and give it to Hillary Clinton? And so none of the emails were from Hillary Clinton and none of them were to her. They were emails from this other person that Hillary Clinton had like no knowledge of. And then um, they wanted to determine whether she was negligent. But in order to, to like for her to have done anything illegal, she had to share classified information with the intent of spreading that information to people who shouldn't have it, which would not have probably been the case. And then um, she also had to like know that she was knowingly distributing classified information. So it's probably not going to lead to anything. But it's like the way that um, the FBI director released the statement, it made it seem like they found all these new Hillary emails, which yeah. wasn't the case at all. And now he's being accused of um, using the FBI as this very political institution because he's doing this really close to the election. Mm. Right. So it kind of seems like mostly a non-issue that's being used in really partisan ways. And there was like some stuff I saw this morning that um, when he grafted his statement, the justice department came out and said like, this is not an appropriate thing for you to send because basically he's like saying we're reopening this case, but 
he left it saying, if we discover anything new, we're going to continue to look at it. So it was kind of like saying the same thing twice, mm-hmm. but huge PR thing out of it. Right. So right. the Justice Department was like, this is a huge misuse of the power of the FBI. Hmm. So that's my understanding of what happened yesterday. But it's like all just happening now. So I don't know. But when I saw the headlines, I just sort of rolled my eyes because it just kind of seems like like more in line with this false equivalency, like this email scandal versus the long list of stuff that Trump has done, including advocating for sexual assault, where I'm like, right, right, exactly. We have to have an equal number of stories on both sides. So let's do this. Right. Or that, I mean, to take the real like killjoy moment, like if we're going to like talk about how like horrible shit Hillary Clinton's done, like let's talk about drones or, you know, things like that. Um, Her relationship with wall street. Like it's just, it's fascinating to me that, you know, this word email, like I, I, you know, I hear on NPR, they interview people and it's like, you know, she's so corrupt to the emails. And I'm like, I don't think you have, I don't think most people have any idea what the details of the email scandal are, particularly because there is no scandal. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. but the I things mean, that are more legitimate, like the text of some of her talks to Wall Street came out, and they're not exactly positive. But there's not a whole lot of discussion of that or like, right? Yeah, there was something about I think uh, Mike Brown. Um, I'm sorry, not Mike Brown. Eric Garner, um, because Eric Garner's daughter started campaigning with Bernie. And there was like an email about that that was like really callous and, you know, probably to be 100 percent frank, probably was just like she might have had emotions about it. I'm not trying to say she like had absolutely no like human emotion in response to like black death, but it was like a calculated like, you know, I'm going to respond to the fact that this person is now being, you know, utilized by the Sanders campaign or whatever. And yeah, like like nobody's talking about that. So, right. It just seems such an odd thing to, like, continue to harp on. Right. Right. Totally. Yeah. Well, okay. So we're ruining people's dinner party if they think that the email stuff is important. We're saying, guess what? It's not unless you want to talk about the more substantive stuff. But usually the people who want to talk about emails don't give a shit about drones or Eric Garner in general. So Right. And I would also give a plug if you're interested in what Rachel and Dana were just talking about in terms of people not understanding the email scandal. Uh, This American Life actually did a really interesting episode last week where Ira Glass kind of dug into this concept of our nation now not even needing facts to produce their own opinions. And it's also to the point where people will just hear non-truths, like there's an email scandal and just repeat it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that he thinks this is like a widespread problem. Um, And he interviews his one of his uncles who is a Trump supporter. But that's not really the point. The point is that he's one of those people that will hear just these like flat out lies spread, you know, and sound clips in the media latch onto it and then just reproduce it, even though it's completely Mm -hmm. false. And then when presented with truth, will say that's not true, which is what Trump does as well. Um, but it's actually like a very serious problem that we're like living in right now where like scholars like yeah. us and like reporters who are like, this is the truth. And then people are like, 
no, it's not. Like, how do you go forward from there? You know, and so this is just part, this email scanner thing is just part of the, of the larger issue of people not, like, facts no longer mean anything to certain people. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyways, this American life, if you want to see, hear a, um, you know, a well put together artsy fartsy uh, take on it. Yeah. So, okay. So should we, should we move on to the, to the main topic of Dana? Yes. <laughs> okay. Dana, can we talk to you about being pregnant first? Oh, absolutely. Great. Well, yeah. congratulations on being pregnant. Um, mm-hmm. And well. although, Hey, do you like it when people <laughs> say congratulations? Does that, is that, does that resonate with you? That feeling? No, it doesn't. Okay. See, <laughs> that's why I was like, no. Okay. It doesn't. It doesn't like make me angry or anything. But it it seems kind of odd because it's like, congratulations, you had sex at least. That <laughs> seems like. Um, right. And and also because we weren't trying to get pregnant, and so it's like, congratulations. And you're like, whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good to know. Noted. I think that's a good segue into some of the things that make it tough to be a pregnant person, though. And it's that, like, one of the hardest things is that pressure to be so excited and, you know, to to have this be talked about as, like, the greatest thing ever. And it's it's tough if you don't feel like that to constantly feel that pressure, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. We definitely live in a world that... Um, suggests that this is the most special and important like thing a person can can do um generally women in particular and Mm -hmm. uh I'm always I always sort of bring it back to like the lack of excitement that people seem to have when we all got our PhDs like I didn't get cards in the mail I didn't get like a registry (laughs) like (laughs) you know um and you know people don't walk around on the street being like, holy shit, you like toiled away and worked so hard mm-hmm. and, you know, congratulations. It's uh, so it's just, it's just interesting that what, what our culture values, not to say that motherhood is not going to probably be the hardest thing you will ever do in your life, hands down. But like this, like, like you said, like the pregnancy itself is a result of something that a lot of people do. Yeah, like it's actually the result of like gross negligence in terms of birth control. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I worked for five years to get right. PhD. I was in college for ten years. Right? <laughs> like <laughs> that was really tough. Having sex without a condom—that that was like totally easy. It was yeah. just <laughs> Congratulations! You had unprotected sex. Yeah. Oh, oh, all right. <laughs> Good, good times. Um, anyways, that's why I was asking, because I, I feel like as a society, you're just supposed to like say congratulations, you know, and and sometimes I just want to be like, and this is not to you personally, Dana, but it's like way to go. You're bringing another child into the world when there's like, like all these other kids around to like take care of, you know, and so I never really resonate with it, but I just want to be. So I'm yeah, but what are you supposed to, you know, like, it's the polite thing to say. Congratulations. Right? What should I say, Dana, to you? Like, so you're having a baby. Yay? Are you feeling me? 
Right. And he's just one of those nice seasons. Like I said, it doesn't make me upset or anything, but it always just feels a little bit I don't I don't know what to take back. Now what about now what about if somebody says congratulations and then proceeds to unconsensually touch your belly? <laughs> Which happens so often. Oh my gosh, you would never believe how often it happens. Um then then it's I recoil. Like if it's if it's someone I know, like my sister or something, uh, comes up and like touches the my belly or asks if they can feel the baby move or something like that. Like not a problem. I, it's like touching. It's it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been all these really weird times. So one of my friends bought me a T-shirt that says, "You can touch my belly if I can punch your face." <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was wearing that t-shirt and Jeremy and I went out for lunch and the server was like being kind of like short and rude with us. And then, um, whatever, you know, I don't care. And then she realized I was pregnant and her whole demeanor changed. She actually reached under the table to touch my God. while I was wearing this shirt, just like a stranger. And she just like instantly like saw it and like, grabbed it. I was like, oh my God, what is happening here? Like a couple weeks ago, I was walking my dog and this woman like stumbles out of a bar and was like, oh my gosh, you're so pregnant. Like I didn't realize that I was so pregnant and (laughs) uh, proceeds to like rub my stomach. I'm like, okay, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So it happens really often. and, And it's not even just the touching. It's like, excessive commentary about my body it's like I walk into a room and people notice it and it's not that you know I mean like you walk into a room there's a person who's 39 weeks pregnant out of 40 they're gonna look pretty pregnant right (laughs) you're gonna notice but people will like throughout the entire pregnancy have made comments on what they thought about how my body is is changing like either that I look good or bad or big or small or whatever and it's like why I don't really care what right. your opinion of that is. Right. And I think even more interesting, the commentary has moved over to my partner. So mm. throughout my pregnancy, my, my partner was training to run a half marathon and actually lost quite a bit of weight. And yet people would come up to him. Well, they come up to me and make comments about my body and then instantly look at him and be like, I see you're trying to get pregnant too. And like make comments like <gasps> about his belly and they like imply that he must be like three or four months pregnant and wow to the point where he started getting very self-conscious about it because and would like make jokes first because so many people would comment on his body like as a as wow. like extension of commenting on mine and it's just really bizarre wow that's that is that's fascinating because when at first when you were talking I was like well obviously we live in a culture where people feel entitled to make comments about and touch women's bodies. And it's interesting that like the sort of shield that men get is sort of eliminated when they become an extension of the pregnant woman. (laughs) Right, exactly. And, you know, he's a confident person, but when someone constantly is like, oh, you're gaining weight too, in the midst of a period of his life, he's actually like losing a lot of weight. It was, he started getting very self-conscious of it. It's amazing how that uh, happened. Yeah. Do you you think some of this, some of the things that you're experiencing is due to where you're living? You know, I think so, but like, we can just backtrack for a second. So I moved from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and previously Minneapolis. I've never lived in a small town before in my life. And 
I moved to this town of 900 people in the mountains of Oregon. And I think I was very fearful about what that transition to a small town would be like, because in Wisconsin, where I grew up, small towns in northern Wisconsin are um, not progressive. They're sort of scary politically to be in if you are a progressive feminist person. And when I moved here, I sort of expected it to be the same and was very fearful. But I will say that um, the friends that we have in our town um, are actually super progressive. There are three three total businesses in our town. <laughs> and uh, two of them are owned by LGBT couples who are super active in the community. There's like amazing stuff on gender that happens here. And so like I, I was really surprised and had to kind of backtrack my stereotypes of small towns and check mm -hmm. that when I moved here because a lot of that wasn't happening. But at the same time, I do think, you know, this still is a small town. It's still, it, there still is, you know, a lot of small town mentality. And I think that part of it, uh, we still see a lot of like push towards uh, like gender binaries and uh, encouraging hypermasculinity and hyperfemininity. And so I think that all plays a part of it. But I've had that commentary from, and he's had that commentary from, you know, people I work with at the university who have PhDs in communication and other disciplines. And, you know, like he gets it from a lot of people who, and probably more so from people who are from bigger cities or who are educated or who, you know, the kinds of people we would assume stereotypically would not make those types of comments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Hmm. And it's just, the, the commentary for him and for me, it's, you know, those are actually like some of the more appropriate types of commentary. The commentary that like makes me cringe the most about bodies is just like the gross oversharing of really graphic pregnancy details, like mm. um, especially people I don't know that well. And um, so people will tell me about things like the creams they rubbed on their labia to prevent tear. <laughs> and, uh, They'll talk to me about what it felt like when they tore or had an episiotomy. Oh, God. These are people I don't know very well. Right. Mm. And they're like, wow, okay, we are talking about your vagina right now. Uh, we don't know each other. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's part of me that wants to um, provide some sympathy because we live in a culture where once the baby is born, we don't really care about the woman and her body and goes through and clearly the process of childbirth gets lost in that and there seems to be no space for women to talk about how hard that was or talk about not loving that experience or you know any of the details of it and so when that gets silenced and everyone's just expected to be like no I feel great right like mom and baby are doing great like you pushed a baby out of your body or it was cut out of you you're not doing great right right, <laughs> right. day um, and it just seems to me how much people share it seems to be a reflection of the fact that they haven't really fully processed that from whenever they experienced it. And sometimes these are like very old women telling me these really intimate details about what happened in their bodies. And I think, yeah, part of that stems from that there's just no space for women to talk about one of these like amazing experiences that it were very traumatic for their physical and emotional selves. But it's also like on the other side, like, I still don't want to hear about your vagina right now. Right. Especially, right. Especially at work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
that really nails it, though, that when we don't have um, exactly what you described, like a culture that enables space for that, of course, it's going to come out in these like pretty inappropriate ways. Um, I'm curious, like, I, I do think like that the mommy blog phenomenon is sort of also an ex- uh, like an offshoot of that, um, where you can like visit like that's like just such a huge phenomenon on the internet are, you know, blogs by mothers writing about sort of exactly these kinds of things. Um, and I think also particularly, we'd love to have you back on once you um, have the baby in the world and, and are mothering the child when it is out of your belly um, to talk about the ways that, uh, yeah, moms just sort of get structurally shit all over, uh, even though they're sort of celebrated symbolically, like all over the place. I think that all that sort of like mom love in the culture, uh, is like sort of a, um, it hides the fact that in reality, what we actually provide mothers in terms of giving them room, whether it's at their workplaces or just having lives, you know, outside of their children and, or whatever else that, that the, our, our society does, is not designed to support mothers, even though we say we are. Right. And I, I feel a lot of that now in a couple of ways. And one is um, uh, that there isn't a whole lot of room to talk about not feeling connected to the baby in pregnancy. So if I want to tell people how much I love the baby and I love being pregnant, there's like a line of people who can't wait to hear about that. Mm -hmm. But that's not the reality of how I feel. And in fact, the absolute hardest thing for me in this pregnancy has been the pressure to feel really excited and have people say things like, just wait till you hold the baby. You're going to love it so much more than you do now. And I'm like, well, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, I better (laughs) Um, or just like this demand that this is something that I'm really excited about or the only thing that I want to talk about as though I have nothing else going on. And if I play the role of of mother in that way, it, it's praised a lot. But when I want to talk about how I'm actually not loving it or being pregnant is actually really difficult or, uh, you know, talk about other things I have going on that have nothing to do with the pregnancy, there certainly is much less room for that. And people seem sort of surprised (laughs) by that to the point where it like almost silences that. And when I first got pregnant and all these people were, were jumping up and down and I felt like, I don't know if I want to do this, you know, this is, you know, maybe we're not going to go through with this. I don't know what to do. Uh, There wasn't, there's not space for that. There's not like a public space for that. And when I started through therapy. Thank you, therapy. Everyone should go to therapy. <laughs> Amen. Rejecting that and saying, no, the way you would handle this is to just goof around about it and tell jokes about it and, <laughs> you know, don't be yourself, do those things. Uh, it got a lot easier, but it's, it's hard to create that space. But yeah, once I did, then all of a sudden, all these people were like, yeah, I felt that way too. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like everyone keeps the, the curtain up and then when you're like, no, you don't have to keep that curtain up, they're willing to say, oh, yeah, that was total bullshit anyway. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to lead with, you know, how wonderful it is and how beautiful it is. And, yeah. And then navigating these systems, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like once the baby's around. Because even navigating it now, trying to navigate things like FMLA, I mean, it's really mm-hmm. not, it has not been an easy and you're 
always selecting from a series of very imperfect options and makes that very hard. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So how much leave do you get then? Because you are still going to finish up the semester? Yeah, so I had three options when I, uh, so I'm I'm uh, giving birth in the middle of, uh, we're on the quarter system. I'm okay. getting giving birth in the middle of the fall quarter. So my options were to teach the first half of my course face-to-face and then move online when the baby's born and still be responsible for all the content and grading for the first month the baby's alive until the quarter ends. My other options <laughs> were to take the fall, the whole fall quarter off, but then I would only have um, eight weeks at home with the baby and I'd have to start back up um, in the first week in January when spring term starts. Or I could um, take an unpaid quarter, which I could not do. Mm-hmm. So my imperfect wow. choices, this was the best one, but it's, you know, when I have a newborn baby and have just undergone a major stomach surgery, because I have a scheduled C-section, um, there is, I, I will be required to still keep up with my class and attend meetings and stuff. That's insanity. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But it's the only way I could do it and still have like a reasonable amount of time at home with the baby. This country wow. is so fucked up with maternity and paternity leave. Yeah. And I would say... I'm lucky because, yeah, I mean, I'm lucky because my partner has paternity leave that is way better than mine. Um, Wow. And I still get paid time off. So I'm already very lucky. But the fact that I'm lucky because I get to work the month (laughs) after my baby's born is, you know, it's really saying something. Yeah. And that's what I chose, and my workplace made accommodations for me. So it's you know, but it, it again, it, there are it's all imperfect options, and the fact that we don't just offer this to people is mind blowing to me. Right? Do you know? Are yeah. you familiar with how other Western countries do uh, family leave? Like, is it a government subsidy, or is it? individual companies because i've seen those maps you know where it shows like how much leave we get versus other countries and we get like basically nothing yeah so i mean i don't know our government is messed up uh they need to give us more (laughs) opportunities for family leave um but dana you were telling saying to us that uh when you're pregnant, oftentimes people just want to talk about your pregnancy and not other things. And we actually do want to talk to you about other things. But before we transition into your research, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't bring up with you? Two quick things I think are are, are important things. One uh, is continuing with our uh, discussion of FMLA. And so I'm lucky because I work for an employer that has more than 50 employees and I've been there for a year, which qualifies me for FMLA. There's all these social barriers for people to actually take FMLA. So uh, I've been very lucky because my department has been extraordinarily supportive and they have kind of let me structure this how I want it to be structured and have, you know, been really great. But there's been other people throughout the university and throughout the community who ask questions like, 
uh, when I'm at, you know, going up for tenure, like make sure you put extra things in your file because you know you're going to be gone or, um, you know, uh, did you go above and beyond because you're worried about your maternity leave or are you sure you know all of the options available because I'm not sure the choices you're making are the ones that will serve students the best or, um, you know, just little comments constantly like, even just things from my community, like, are you worried about your job, given that you're taking this leave, where it plants this seed of doubt and um, makes this pressure, or people will say things like, oh, well, I want to meet with you about that. I know you're probably busy before your pregnancy, but I'll come over while you're on leave, and we'll talk about it. And it's like, whoa, time out a second. Like, that's my leave time. Right. I don't want to be doing work during that leave time, or I'm not going to have the mental space because I'll have a newborn baby, right? Right. And and so there's all these social barriers where when you say you're taking this leave, there's a lot of pressure to not really take it or to not be too gone, right? Or um, to make sure that you're still somewhat available to your employer or that you're doing extra work to accommodate this accommodation they're making for you. When it's there as a legal thing where you can just step away. That's what it's designed to, to be there for. Right. And it comes really difficult with these little side comments, and I and I don't think anyone means anything by it, but I find myself like trying to do extra stuff to make sure no one has any cause for complaint while I'm gone on this leave, right? right. And super messed up because it's been very stressful doing extra work to get ready. Totally, that a legal right I have to take this leave. Yeah, I think that first I was like, do you think that's like an academia thing? But I think what you're describing is like the culture of in our like the way our society frames work as this. I think one of those one of the sort of most insidious effects of the sort of do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life or like if you love your work, you can go above and beyond because you love it is that it like makes people um makes people afraid to do, you know, when, when we say the bare minimum, the bare minimum of like, first of all, it's not the bare minimum because obviously, particularly in academia, you're never like just, you can't like scrape by on like a 40 hour work week generally, but even like doing things that you're legally allowed to do, people feel guilt. People feel, I just had a friend who was like this, she's a fitness and like a full-time fitness instructor so she hops around from you know studio to studio doing all these different things and this one place asked like asked her because she's a student at their she goes to their gym classes and they wanted to hire her for um they wanted to hire her and she's like but I might start at a new studio in three months and I might not have time to do both you know when I do that is do you think it's unethical for me to take this job if I might leave in three months I'm like you're like we are in this mentality where we feel like we owe our employers the shit when it's, I mean, that's just like, that's just fucking one of the worst things about capitalism is that laborers feel indebted to the people who exploit them, you know? And it's so easy to adopt that mentality and make it personal, right? Like, yeah. I care about my students so much, so I need to. And then right. you have to time out and say, no, like, you have a life outside of this job, but it's really difficult to make that disconnect because of how embedded that capitalist ideology becomes. And so even though I rationally know that, actually taking the time to separate those out and say, no, this is your right, you can do this, Right. super hard. Totally, totally. So 
the other thing that I wanted to mention is all of the gender comments that I get about the baby. And so every time someone notices that I'm pregnant, they'll instantly ask me whether I'm having a boy or a girl, as if, first of all, those are the only two options. Um, And they will uh, sort of obsess over it. And Mm -hmm. teaching an advanced gender comm class last year, my students asked me to start keeping track of how many times people ask me that. And by my 15th week of pregnancy, so like, you know, not even four months into it, like three months into it, um, I lost track at over 50 times people had asked me that. When you think about what they're asking, what they're really asking me to do is identify what my child's genitals look like, right? Right. What kind of genitals does your kid have? And it's just such a bizarre question to ask, first of all. But then it kind of gets weirder. So we, uh, at our 20-week ultrasound, was very obvious that our child has a penis. And uh, so, you know, we're like, oh, we're having a boy. And... Um, you know, people make all sorts of comments. And so we have been phrasing it like, well, we're having a boy. And they're like, tell us all the things he's now going to be into. Like, oh, oh you're God. Yes. Well, now he's definitely going to like these sports, right? Or whatever. And uh, it's, it's super disgusting to me that we make those types of connections. And I find myself being like, yeah, well, you know, he, he is a boy unless he decides that he's not or he realizes he's not, in which case he's not a boy, right? So who right. knows? Or they say things, um, so to my partner, Jeremy, uh, several people have said things to him like, you must be so glad you're having a boy. Oh, and so because he's a boy, then if we have a, <laughs> this is like his dream. He'll get to do boy stuff with this kid. And oh. it's so frustrating because he is not that kind of person. And he grew up in this environment that encouraged him to be sort of a hypermasculine misogynist. And it was a really difficult process to unlearn that um, or well, to learn it because it never came naturally to him. And then to unlearn it in adulthood to say, this is not the way that I want to structure my life or my relationships that I want to be in touch with my complex range of emotions and be able to talk about those things and to not be forced into this really small box where I cut out all these parts of my life and, so he gets really, really frustrated when people say those kinds of things. So we're both vomiting most of the time. I bet. I get a lot of comments about how lucky I am that I'm having a boy because boys are easier. Oh, to do God. Because boys are easier, right? And <laughs> oh, my God. They're not as emotional as girls are. And um, when, I'm a, when that kid's a teenager, I'm going to be so lucky. And it's strange what they're really saying is that we – encourage um, like men to ignore their emotions so much boys don't cry boys don't feel that way boys are not encouraged to have empathy that by the time they're a teenager they learn to not express that and it's a result there so if they are easier to deal with it's the result of us shutting out the difficult parts of raising someone into adulthood that is an emotionally stable, capable person and has nothing to do with what is between their legs, right? Or how their bodies function or anything else. It's just so frustrating to me to continuously get that. And I think I must have been told having a boy is easier like at least 100 times. Oh, God. It's it's just this thing that... You know, like, because you know how women are always so difficult and emotional and, like, bitchy. Oh, right. Of course. 
And so I'm lucky that I have a boy because they're just so easy to deal with. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that if that isn't like gender theory 101, like in in an anecdote, I don't know what it is. Um, wow. Yeah, I saw I saw a thing on Tumblr and it was like um, I had a gender reveal party and when they cut the cake, like green M and M started pouring out of the cake and my family was like, wait, I'm confused. And I said, all right, gather around everyone, everybody. It's time for gender 101. <laughs> and <laughs> um, yeah, that I cannot imagine. And I'm sure like when you start getting, you know, you're going to get gifts, you're going to get sports gifts, you're going to get truck gifts, you're going to get blue gifts, you know, when, and that's just, oh, what a, what a world. I mean, and we wonder why, you know trans people are murdered on a regular basis. Exactly. And it's even like structuring friendships. So people, other people who have kids, when they have sons, they say, oh, our kids can be friends. Or before we knew the sex of the baby, they would say, I hope it's a boy or I hope it's a girl because then our kids could be friends as though like they couldn't be friends otherwise. Well, they would probably like, don't you know, men and women can't be friends. Boys and girls can't be friends, Dana, because, you know, your 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 infant children would probably like want to like have sex with each other if it was a boy and a girl. Right. Compulsive. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Well, we would. I mean, we we, I'm sure we could keep talking about pregnancy. But again, we really do want to respect the fact that you have a brain that thinks about things other than being a mom. Um, So. (laughs) We, we, Mel sort of gave like a super small um, sort of summary of your, of your dissertation research. Um, I don't know if you want to sort of say anything else that you've sort of done with that research, um, or if you just want to tell us about what you're working on now. Um, We'd just love to hear what you're thinking about as a scholar. Well, I'm still working on dissertation research and uh, trying to turn that into a book with additional case studies. And I'll just say that probably in the last couple of years, the projects that I'm working on that will add to the book are things that try to be like add more like nuance and messiness. So like, yes, we have all these corporations who are going in and being like, we're going to help women, but it's really just because they're trying to earn profit and they're only helping certain types of women because those types of women uh, sell well to mm-hmm. mostly white upper middle-class consumers in the United States. But uh, I've been doing some other types of projects in which I start to question some of the assumptions that I make because I'm also in you know, middle to upper middle class white woman in the United States trying to make comments about what is good and bad about some of these uh, systems that are at play and really questioning my role in being able to decide when someone's being exploited and when they're not and trying to provide more space for women to define for themselves when they're feeling exploited. And uh, I'm working with one of my colleagues from here uh, who's actually working on a campaign on the ground in India where uh, she and eventually we will get to go over there and film uh, projects where we actually talk to women who are part of um, some of these types of campaigns about how they're feeling um, empowered by and constrained by some of these programs and so often that happens simultaneously so kind of taking yourself out of it and um, making sure that those voices that I'm not projecting something onto people because I think they're being exploited. So Right. That's amazing. That's great that you'll get to go over there and do that. Yes. That's awesome. So that's cool. um, and, and then since then, I've been kind of working on a couple of projects. Um, and both of them, both of the big ones that I'm in the midst of have to do with 
online misogyny. And so it turns out, and I was not aware of this um, until relatively recently, but it turns out that there are a ton of um, private Facebook groups for people who support Hillary Clinton to come together to talk about their support for this candidacy. And it came out of people posting their support for this candidate and then having their wall be littered with really, really sexist commentary um, about how stupid they are as women and making a lot of sexist comments about Hillary Clinton. Um, and it's not an endorsement for her candidacy, but just to say that like people who do endorse her candidacy are facing this. And yeah. I have, yeah and so they actually... There are like many groups with many thousands of members each, and they have it's, they post all of the stuff they want to talk about about the election in this private group of other people who are supporters, and so they in some way create this sort of insular network where everybody will agree with them. But it's also this way of saying that the internet has become such a toxic space that even suggesting you support another woman for a candidacy has become such an unsafe thing to do that you need to separate yourself out and uh, you can't be a part of that sort of main space because you'll experience so much backlash, right? right. Like this is such a hostile space for you that um, you can't participate anymore. And so it's kind of taking a look at how and why people feel like they need to escape into um, some of these underground uh, groups in order to just voice their support for a candidate. And it's not like this is a fringe candidate, right? This is a candidate for one of the major parties in the United States. Right. And, you know, people are, and pardon my language, people are called like cunts and bitches and all sorts of like really terrible things just for voicing that support. And it kind of bleeds over into this other project that I'm working on, which takes a look at um, some of the backlash from uh, films starring strong female leads. So we have films like Ghostbusters and there's a new um, Oceans movie that's coming out that stars all women and oh. um, there's a bunch of other campaigns like that or movies coming out like that that are remakes of old films and I'm sure you know about a lot of the on my online misogyny around that. Yeah. Um, so taking a look at um, some of the arguments that people give for why they're engaging in that. So a lot of times people will say, well, it's not about the fact that there's women in it. It's about the fact that this is a remake. And we're really upset. Um, <laughs> there are so many remakes in Hollywood. But when you look at the commentary, it's all very misogynist commentary about um, how dumb and fat and ugly all of these women are who oh think God blah, blah, blah. It's like not even starting on the online misogyny and racism around Leslie Jones. Right. And um, so kind of taking a look at some of that stuff, um, but also the way that um, in, again, comment sections of people, like when people post like, oh, I went to go see Ghostbusters, um, there's, and I liked it, there'll be a ton of commentary from men um, suggesting that it's not important for, for women to see this type of film. So like, <laughs> women saying, wow, it was really incredible to see strong women in film and having men come back and say, no, it's actually not important and really <laughs> negate that experience of pleasure. And it is such a privileged position to be able to come in and not recognize why it would be important for women to see that. And I think back in my life and I can't remember 
a mainstream blockbuster movie in which a woman was fighting against something while also wearing clothing. Right. Like, right. That happened in my totally. life. When I watched totally. that film, I, I thought it was really well done for one, but also, okay. <laughs> I thought it was well done and racist, but also, um, you know, bracketing that part, it was really moving to see strong, funny female leads wearing clothing, fighting something. And I was just really blown away by how dynamic some of that was and just really touched by the fact that it was so shocking to me to see as a totally. person, right? To see that in a movie theater. And we see that so infrequently. And to have men, especially white men, come and negate that feeling as being something that's unimportant is um, something I'm working on with. Another PhD friend of ours, Shannon. Shout out to Shannon. Oh, neat. Awesome. Hi, Shannon. Uh, that that sounds like such amazing work. I think um, something that I think is so important about, uh, I think that comm and media researchers have um, an ability to to intervene and, and, and uh, create an impact uh, around is like we live in a, in a world where a lot of people are like, oh my God, don't read the comments. And it's like, no, we actually have to engage with the comment section because that's those, those, those comments come from human beings who exist in our society and our culture. So what does it mean when we interrogate the, the, the sentiments behind these words? And um, certainly online is a cesspool of misogyny and racism. And um, uh, Mel, you had a question, I think, about this. Um, about studying misogyny and racism, did you want to ask Dana about? Yeah, researching researching things that are, well, <laughs> I guess I'm asking for you, but it was your question, so thanks for the smart question, Melody. Um, how do you handle like immersing yourself in research that is so infuriating? To quote Melody, that was my question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have been asked that a lot, like how I don't just you know, fight the urge to jump in front of a bus. Well, and we're looking at some of this stuff. It was exactly how it was phrased a few months, actually. Um, I actually find it cathartic in some ways because I think about some of the experiences that I've had um, and being stalked or being, um, like, having these types of comments made about me or people I care about. And I think it's important to... Uh, take a time out and uh, see that I'm not alone in experiencing those things and to call out those spaces. And I find it uh, actually very rewarding to do that, to, to take a look at some of these spaces and uh, being able to call the, be able to call them for what they are or to um, help other people make sense of the fact that this is happening all over and that we need to fight it. And I kind of see doing a lot of that work, especially when I bring that research into, you know, for example, my classroom or give a community talk or something um, that a lot of times I talk about it as like a pair of glasses, right? And so when you hold up a lens, a pair of glasses to a lot of those spaces and you encourage someone to look at it in a new way, those glasses can't come off. And a lot of times people who hear that work or see that work they can't look at those types of spaces in the same way again, even if they try. And so I actually find it cathartic to uh, engage with that work and engage with that material from my own perspective, um, but also to be able to share it with other people. And then I'll, um, I'll also say that 
um, it can be really difficult. So I often change topics on a fairly regular basis because there's only so much like sexist backlash against women in positions of power I can handle. And then I'm like, okay, so I'm going to talk about film and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get really into this. And then I get to like my breaking point. And then I always have something on the back burner I can go look at instead so that I don't engage with any one thing too long. So yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Good strategy. Yeah. Um, Mel, any other questions for Dana before we move on? Yeah. I just had one one follow-up question you mentioned community talks and obviously changing people's viewpoints through your research um is there others like because oftentimes as academics we get the uh we're often told that like who cares like what difference does your work make um did you have anything else you wanted to add about how your research impacts people outside of academia I think that's a question I struggle with all the time because I oscillate between feeling like incredible highs from teaching and being like, this is so important. The work I'm doing in the classroom is really important or giving a good talk in the community. Be like that impacted people. That was wonderful. Um, and then feeling like I'm in this silo and the things I'm looking at don't make a difference. And if I publish in this academic journal, no one's going to read it. Right. And so mm. I don't know. I think I struggle with that the same way a lot of scholars who do engage scholarship struggle. And so I'm not sure if I have much to add other than it depends on the day how I'm feeling about whether my work is making an impact in the community or not. Yeah, I think that resonates yeah. with a lot of feminist scholars. So. I'm sure totally. there's lots of feel... nodding heads happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ours included. <Yes. laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's awesome. We, um, I mean, well, I'm speaking for both of us now, but I, I know at least I, and I'm, I think Melody too, have uh, have always just really um, been uh, inspired and, and admired your research. Um, and it sounds like you're still doing really awesome, amazing things. Um, so yay. I'm excited for you to keep putting it out because even though academic research doesn't get read by the masses, I'll read it. Uh, a bunch of us and our students will read it. So keep doing it. <laughs> um, but would you, can we invite you to stick around for our final closing segment, uh, our, our WLs of the week? Absolutely. Cool. Um, all right. Uh, Mel, do you want to start? Sure. Um, so this week I've been reading a lot about the health insurance premium story that's been in the news. And I've just been keeping an eye on it because I'm kind of confused about the premiums going up. And I like, am thinking that the insurance companies have something to do with it. Like they're pissed that um, the ACA is forcing them to cover a bunch of people. And um, it's just not being talked about in the media in a critical way as much as I want it to be. It's the framework is more like, these people, their premiums are going up and somebody is to blame. We don't know who, but we're just going to blame the Affordable Care Act and Obama. Mm. So um, I've just been like trying to, I'm just monitoring the news stories because I feel like the reporters aren't doing the best of jobs. Um, so anyways, I've just been reading a lot about that. Um, I've been watching last week, Saturday Night Live, specific clips um, David S. Pumpkins is a very popular one that I just am, like <laughs> showing my students randomly. I was like, you guys need to watch this right now. And it's uh, also, can I just jump in super, super quick? Um, mm -hmm. if you get the gif of David S. Pumpkins saying any questions, you can literally end any lecture like PowerPoint with that gif <laughs> of him going any questions. So I, 
I did it the other day. My students didn't find it that funny, but I plan to keep doing it. <laughs> I also, that is so funny. Great minds think light because on my uh, online site, I had posted some like, I'm like, basically like, you got to get your shit together students because you're falling apart. And I did blah, 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 blah. And then right at the end to make sure that they knew that I still cared about them, I put a uh, a screenshot of David S. Pumpkins and I said, yeah. any questions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> teachers like dream were like, yeah. Yeah, it really legitimately is. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, it was good. No, it's good. Going. It's good. And then um <laughs> and then another good skit that you should you all should look up is uh Ron Howard. So Tom Hanks pretends to be Ron Howard, who that, that's fine. Um he hosts a cat video show and then he brings on these two French women and they uh, talk about cat videos in a very like morose way and it's just um very it's funny because the humor is like kind of um it's on a different level than like just like immediate haha like so i've just been watching a lot of those clips over and over and then also because it's a very fall and cold here i've been playing old band of horses albums I really that's a like good autumn album yeah, yeah. I really like their older stuff. Um, I think Cease to Begin is like my number one, but their older stuff is like really good and excellent for fall. Yeah, that is. That's good autumnal music. Cool. Um, I'll go real quick. Uh, this is the same thing I posted on our on our Facebook group. So those of you in the group will, will know know the drill. But um, I'm reading this book called Against Health, and I'm really excited about um, about it, even though I'm reading it kind of to... Uh, counter it a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of really amazing uh, scholarship uh, critiquing the health as moral imperative, um, sort of constructs around health as being this thing that we can attain and all these different, um, and also just like on a structural level, like lack of access to health resources and for certain marginalized populations. Um, but I'm working on a paper that is going to talk about the ways in which uh, radical social movements have talked about health as a tool uh, of anti-capitalism. Um, so like uh, ACT UP talking about uh, fighting AIDS and maintaining health uh, as a way to also you know, challenge the corporatism of the FDA, um, the Black Panther movement uh, doing calisthenics every morning and uh, you know, lunch programs uh, and thinking about health in those ways um, as a way to sort of like literally create bodies that are capable of fighting in a revolution. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm excited about reading this book to sort of, anyway, expand on those kinds of ideas. Um, that sounds watching... really smart. Excuse yeah. me. I'm, I'm excited. I'm Gold excited star for that smart argument. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm super stoked about it. Uh, watching uh, Insecure, the HBO show with Issa Rae. I'm really liking it. Have either of you watched it yet? No. I haven't yet. It's I how do you get access I think to that show? I am a bougie person who has HBO like legally okay. on my Roku. Yeah, so yeah, it's 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 really it's really good. I, I like it a lot. Good. Um, it keeps getting better every episode. Um, and re-listening to um, I was listening to a bunch of like Halloween songs that could also be good for sculpt because I taught sculpt today and it was a Halloween playlist. So like. Kanye has a song called Monster and Rihanna and Eminem have that song called Monster, even though I don't like Eminem. But um, so I was looking for like songs that could double as spooky and also like doing push ups and squats, too. Um, so that's it. Dana. 
Oh, reading political articles about the election because I'm teaching common politics and this election is so messed up that I have a hard time explaining to my students why it's so messed up. So I am super immersed in that. Yeah. Um, So that, um, watching, uh, I'll do one segue. One of the best things I've watched uh, in the last week is Michelle Obama's speech on sexual assault. Yeah. 10 minutes it was that and then it moved into campaign stuff but um i loved it because uh i have been really immersed in talking about donald trump's advocacy and bragging about sexual assault in this sort of detached academic way because i was talking to my students about it and i watched that speech and started tearing up because it was this moment where she encouraged women to um and and all sorts of people, really, but everybody to just take a step back and realize how impactful that is for people who are victims of that on an emotional level. Like we experience that every single day, those little types of comments and that is super fucked up. And so just giving me a space to say, yeah, actually that does impact me on a very serious emotional level and it's okay to not be so detached. Mm-hmm. Um, so that but I'm also you know in my in my typical media self I'm always about 10 years behind um, <laughs> I'm currently watching The Wire yes! uh, for the first time for the first time yeah wow better late than never better late than never yeah yes. totally good job Phenomenal. Dana <laughs> yeah it's so good yes uh, so I'm on season four I actually watch it like almost every day. I'm like, okay, one more, just one yeah. more, just yeah. one. More. Wait, <laughs> it's so. Is season four the the school one? Yes. Oh my Ugh, god. god, that's such a rough season. It's How- just I'm I'm just at the beginning of it, so don't. Okay, okay. Just <laughs> just if, brace yourself, especially like. <laughs> If you're just be careful with a serious, like this is a serious thing. And I suggest this to everybody. That is a heavy season. I'm just going to warn you. And if you're starting to feel sad, you might want to put it away for a while. Yeah. Because it's good. It will really connect to your life. So yes. Okay. Just a forewarning. We encourage the wire viewing and the binge watching, but it it really does impact you. So just. Okay. (laughs) Just, but. But what I love about the show is it's so unsatisfying. Like nothing wraps up nice. No. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's amazing. No, totally. But that, and then listening to, actually my partner's working on recording an album. And so he has been playing music in our house a lot. So mostly that. (laughs) That's um, great. I haven't listened to it yet, but I saw one is about like workers revolting or something. And I was obviously very down. Yeah. Shout shout out to Jeremy. Very talented singer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Songwriter and all Cool. Well, we are just so, so happy that you uh, joined us. Um, it felt like old times. Mm-hmm. And Thanks. yeah, we close our show saying WTF Power, which stands for Women Trans Femme Power. Um, we can try to do it simultaneously. Shall we give it a shot? <laughs> sure. On the count of three. Ready? Three, yeah. two. Mel, are you there? Yeah. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> three, two, one. WTF Power. Power. (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.
Christ.